This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. If you're ready to study God's Word together, let's turn to Jonah chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to introduce you to uh, an all-star of church history. His name is William Borden. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. And because he was an heir of that family, he graduated a millionaire in 1904. His parents gave him a trip around the world as a graduation present. And so as the young 16-year-old traveled throughout Asia and then the Middle East and, and Europe, God began giving him a burden for the lost and the unreached. And finally, he would write, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. One friend was kind of disgusted by this, and to his surprise that William was going to do this, he said he was throwing his life away to be a missionary. And in response, young William wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves, this missionary call would later narrow to the Muslim Kanzu people of China. And once that goal was in his sight, William never wavered. After graduating from Yale, William Borden turned down multiple high-paying job offers. He would then write in his Bible two more words, no retreats. He went on to seminary at Princeton. And when he finished there, he began sailing for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. And while there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, young 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Mary Taylor wrote in her introduction to his biography, Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself. And in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Examples like this beg the modern Christian to stop for a moment and ask a question. Was William Borden's life a waste? And the shocking answer to our modern ears is a resounding no, not in God's economy. Prior to his death, William wrote two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he also wrote, no regrets. This morning, I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the mission of God is worth it. The mission of God is worth it. The mission of God is worthy of your time. The mission of God is worthy of your talents, your money, and yes, even your own life. And this is important to remember this morning because we don't always think this way. I don't always think this way. It's also important to remember that in the context of our study of Jonah. Because Jonah hasn't operated out of this truth in Jonah chapters 1 and chapter 2, right? He hasn't operated out of that truth. He hasn't operated out of the truth that the mission of God is worth it. Jonah actually serves as the anti-William Borden in so many respects. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Is that God uses. He has used. 
And he will use today even the unworthiness of his servants to carry out his missional plan. As a matter of fact, he will use even the, the unworthiest of any of us to carry out his missional plan if he so chooses. His relentless grace uses even the most rebellious of hearts to make a name for himself. That's what we're going to see in today's text. So let's go to the scriptures to see how God brought his mercy to a wicked people through a rebellious prophet. We have diagnosed missional disobedience week one. We then dealt with missional disobedience in week two. Now this morning, we're going to witness spiritual awakening. And in verse one of chapter three, this is what the word says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I love Jonah chapter 3 because Jonah chapter 3 gives us a picture of our God who is the God of second chances. He is the God of a million and one second chances. We have seen the great disobedience of Jonah and he is the unworthiest of people, the unworthiest of God's children to accomplish his task. But he goes and God still uses him. This morning, friends, what I want to show you is I want to show you some crucial reminders of walking on mission with God. Because you and I walk with, on, with God on mission today. And we need these reminders burned into our hearts as we see the example of what God did through Jonah in Nineveh. And here's the first crucial reminder we learn in this text. It's very simple, but it's revolutionary. God is faithful even when you're not. God is faithful even when you are not. Our Father is faithful to His people. He is faithful to you. He is faithful to me. Even when we've been quite unfaithful to Him. And in the midst of our unfaithfulness, here's the good news this morning. He doesn't toss you into the trash heap of spiritual misfits and look for a plan B. Certainly, we've seen Jonah's disobedience and how he spiritually blew it with God. We saw that last week, right? But at the conclusion of Jonah's prayer, God 
vomited them out of the fish's mouth and back onto the dry land. And then God's commission comes to him a second time. Here's what I I want to do is I want you to show you the contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Just go to the first three verses of chapter 1, then the first three verses of chapter 3. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Look at chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's the same mission. It's the same message. It's the same commission from God. And then you look at Jonah's response, right? Verse 3 in chapter 1. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But look at chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, very similar language on God's part in both chapters, almost verbatim, yet a dramatically different response on Jonah's part this time. And so let's think about the God of second chances for a moment. Let's think about the different uh, reaction of Jonah and how God uses Jonah here in the midst of his Uh, repentance and obedience now before God. So so let's see some truths to contrast chapter 1 and chapter 3. The first one is this. His mercy is unending. God's mercy is unending. The reality is this morning that the entire book serves as one big illustration of God's mercy. I mean, consider the mercy of God in the midst of Jonah's disobedience up to this point. Jonah ran from God's commission, and then in his mercy, God pursued him. The sailors tossed Jonah into the tumultuous sea, and then in his mercy, God appointed a big fish to rescue him. Jonah prayed a prayer of repentance, and in his mercy, God appointed the fish to vomit Jonah out onto dry land. Jonah disobeyed God's commission the first time, and then in his mercy, God commissions him a second time. Here's the truth for you and for me this morning. When you spiritually blow it, your heart's default is to believe that God is finished with you. You believe that he doesn't love you anymore. That this time is the time that his mercy has run out. When you deliberately disobey the Lord, friend, you will be tempted to think that God cannot now, nor will he ever be able to use you again. But if you learn nothing else from Jonah's testimony in this book, learn this this morning, brother or sister. His mercy is unending towards you. It never stops in Jesus Christ. Our God is the God of a million and one second chances. And as we so often see here at Mill City, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. His mercy is unending. His command is non-negotiable. His command is non-negotiable. When you look at the command in chapter 3, verse 2, and you contrast that with God's first command in chapter 1, verse 2, 
you see that God hasn't changed. After Jonah prejudicially disobeyed the first time, did God rewrite the script? Did he come back to Jonah and say, you know what, Jonah, I, I'm the one who is being unreasonable here. Like, I mean, how could I have ever expected a nationalistic, prejudiced guy like you to go to your sworn enemy to proclaim a message of repentance? You know what? I was wrong. Let's, let's soften the approach here, Jonah. No, that's not what happens. God didn't respond to Jonah's disobedience by calling the angels together in heaven in a holy huddle in order to renegotiate the terms of his contract. Instead, we read the exact same commission. And for you and for me, seeking to obey Jesus today, God's commission is the same as it's always been. Before Jesus left the earth in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he commanded his followers with this commission, make disciples of all nations. And then right before he ascended into heaven to be back with the Father again, in a second way in which to command this, in Acts 1.8, he says that you will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And so brothers and sisters, whether we obey him consistently or not, Jesus isn't going to renegotiate his commission into something more palatable to our 21st century missional tastes. Jonah reminds us here that God's mercy is unending, but he also reminds us that God's commission is non-negotiable. It is what it is. Obey it. And then thirdly, I want you to see here in the midst of these second chances, is that when we receive that second chance from God for the 110th time, our obedience is undebatable. Our obedience is undebatable. Second chances are awesome, aren't they? There's something about a second chance that at least for a moment spurs us toward a change, even if it doesn't last. Children, where, where, where are the kids in the room? When, when mom and dad give you a second chance to follow their instructions, Rather than being punished for your actions, aren't you really thankful for those second chances? And students, when you completely blew off that assignment that was worth half your grade, but then your professor gave you a second chance extension, you sigh in relief, right? And then all of a sudden, you're the world's most studious responsible student, at least for the rest of this week, right? Second chances will do that for you. Second chances will do that. Your behavior and obedience are undebatable, even if it is short-lived. This is certainly the case in Jonah's life here, because we're going to see in chapter 4 that even his obedience here is not really all that long-lasting, 
But it's certainly the case that when we are spiritually disobedient before the Lord, or we are missionally disobedient before the Lord, His mercy is unending, and yeah, His command is non-negotiable. And when you experience that second chance, your obedience then in that moment of experiencing that second chance, it's undebatable. You don't really have a choice in your mind, in your heart, even if it's not long-lasting, and you find yourself in the same situation again. That's why we're thankful that his mercy is unending. Because then we just press the repeat button and we do it all over again. But accompanying mercy and grace is an empowerment towards obedience. And make no mistake, Jonah felt it. He felt God's mercy and grace and God's continued commitment to use him on mission. I love the way Matthew Henry reflects upon this truth in Jonah's life. He says, God's making use of us is the best evidence of his being at peace with us. God's making use of us is the best evidence of his being at peace with us. I love this even in my own life that when I spiritually blow it, and then oftentimes later that same day or the next day or possibly the same week, I just see God use me to do something that I know that only he did. And there is such great relief and consolation that comes when that happens. Because God uses even the worst of us, even when we're at our worst, to accomplish his purposes. Brothers and sisters, this morning, as you walk with God on mission, know this crucial reminder this morning. God is faithful to his people. He is faithful to you. He is faithful to me, even when we've been quite unfaithful to him. That's the first crucial reminder I want you to see this morning as you walk with God on mission in this world. God is faithful even when you are not. Second crucial reminder as you walk with God on mission in this world is that God's word is powerful even when yours seems weak. God's word is powerful even when yours seems weak. So in verse 4, Jonah began his trek into the large, influential, wicked city of Nineveh. What would this nationalistic Israelite say to these wicked enemies of Israel? Would he alter God's message? Would he intensify God's message, making it something that it was not? Would he be tempted to spew out his own vitriol or consternation towards them? But look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah simply preached the message of the Lord. Those were Jonah's words. He simply preached the message God had given to him. He spoke God's word. And what I find striking is that in the midst of his disobedience, he did it immediately. The text tells us that Jonah was such a big city in breadth that it would take three days to walk through it. And in the midst of day one, it says that Jonah preached. So he did not wait. His obedience was immediate the second time. Again, when you encounter the grace of God, your life demonstrates it. But Jonah's preaching of God's word this morning is very instructive for us Christians today. 
Yes, you and I have been called by God to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses in this world. And for most of us, we're going to do that in our local spheres of influence, among our families, our friends, or among our roommates or our workplaces. But for others, we're going to do that on a short-term or long-term mission trip in a foreign context among a foreign people. But walking with God on mission in this world isn't easy, is it? It's difficult. And if we're honest this morning, it's downright scary. It is downright scary to speak up about the message of the gospel. And then on top of that, your own insecurities oftentimes debilitate you by convincing you that you don't have the right words to say. I mean, what would I say even if someone asked me a question? You don't know enough. You, you can't identify enough. You might even be tempted to say, I, I'd love to obey the commission of Jesus. Chris, I would, but I don't have a seminary degree like you. I, I don't know the depths of, a, of Christian apologetics like William Lane Craig, or I don't know biblical Hebrew or Greek like Jonathan Pennington. Therefore, I just cannot be used. But friends, don't miss this truth this morning. The Bible doesn't tell us that the mission of God is predicated upon your words. The power of God and mission is not fueled by your intellectual prowess or your theological fortitude. The power of God is executed in the gospel message itself. It's what Jonah's preaching in Nineveh demonstrated and it's what the Apostle Paul told the church at Rome a few hundred years later. Write this verse down, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Don't miss those words this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is potent. It is powerful. Even when your words are very weak and flailing. That's why you can take an intellectual genius with superior communicative abilities and you can place her in front of an adoring crowd of 2,000 people and she could execute her excellent powers of persuasion. And after hearing her verbose presentation, all 2,000 people could leave that room without ever being changed. But then you could take a very uneducated man with a speech impediment and put him at the dinner table with his extended family and let him share the message of God and the gospel and his entire household is converted to Christ. Why? Because the word of God is powerful for his mission. Even when your words or our presentations are extremely weak. We, say, we see that in Jonah's ministry. We read it in Paul's ministry in the New Testament, and we see it and hear it today in the many faithful examples of everyday followers of Jesus taking the very potent message of the gospel into their spheres of influence, and men and women's lives are changed. 
So since God's word is so powerful for his mission that we see here in Jonah chapter 4, how powerful is it? Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So since God's word is so powerful for his mission, believe his message. I want to implore you today, friend, believe the message of God. It could be that you are here today and you're hearing how Jonah warned the Ninevites of God's impending judgment. And you're reminded of God's warning to you. That unless you believe the message of the gospel and turn, repent of your sin, that you too will experience his judgment. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus. I want to encourage you to acknowledge that you are a sinner. I want to encourage you to then turn away from your sin. I want to encourage you to then place faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And then tell a trusted Christian about what God is doing in your heart. Because the good news for you today is that God brought mercy and repentance to the wicked Ninevites. And what I would tell you today is that if he would bring it to the wicked Ninevites, he'll offer that same mercy, that, that same repentance, that same forgiveness to you today. So believe his message because his words are that powerful. Secondly, trust his method. Trust God's method. For all of us in this room, believe God's method of salvation. Whether it's the ancient city of Nineveh, first century Palestine, or 21st century America, what Jonah did illustrates God's timeless method for salvation. Here it is. Jonah proclaimed the message of God. The Ninevites heard and believed that message. The Ninevites repented of their sin. God extended his mercy and grace. And then the Ninevites' lives showed demonstrative change. Those are the basics of becoming a Christian. Those are the basics of becoming a Christian today. Someone preaches the gospel of Jesus. You then believe the gospel Repent of your sin, and based on that promise, God then extends his mercy and grace and salvation, and then he changes your life. And so this morning, don't allow the example of the Ninevites to be lost on you. Recognize the power of God's word for his mission. Believe his message. Trust his method for salvation. And so this morning, we've seen that God is faithful even when we're not. We've been reminded that God's word is powerful for his mission, even when our word is so incredibly weak. And then a third crucial reminder as you walk on mission with God is this. God is merciful even to those you'd least expect. God is merciful even to those you'd least expect. Now, in the first week of this short series, we introduced the wickedness of the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire, one of Israel's most oppressive enemies. 
The Assyrians were known for their violence, their bloodshed, and relentless tactics against their geopolitical enemies. And that violence and bloodshed then poured over into their own culture as well. Look at verse 8. When the king commands all of the people to put on the posture of repentance and mourning and grief over their wicked deeds, look at what he says. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from, from, the, from the violence that is in his hands. And so this wasn't simply something that was, ex, that was executed outside of the boundaries of Assyria. This was something that even the Ninevites themselves were practicing toward each other. But upon hearing Jonah preach the word of God, they repented. And verse 5 says that they repented from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I don't believe for a moment that this meant that every human being in this very large city of more than a half million people, that every one of them became a true follower of God that day. As a matter of fact, there is virtually no Christian commentator that would even come close to suggesting that. And if you read on through the minor prophets, you'll discover that Nineveh is judged again by God for the exact same sins that we see here in the book of Jonah. But what we do see is a significant, even miraculous work of God among this wicked people. The preaching of God's word dramatically changed people's lives and in effect powerfully changed Ninevite culture all the way up to the king himself we see in the text. And you see that effect in the people's response, right? We read in verse 6 that, that the king himself removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. Then he proclaimed this proclamation to uh, the rest of Nineveh, saying that by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. There's fasting there. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mildly to God. You go down to verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What the Ninevites are giving visible signs of is mourning and grief. When you look through the Old Testament, you see this particularly in the book of Esther. In the midst of, of the circumstances surrounding the Jewish people there. You see it here in the book of Jonah. You see it in multiple places in the Old Testament. And these signs that the Ninevites are visibly giving were signs of grief and mourning in their culture. So when in bankruptcy or living with a dread disease or having just buried a family member or gone through some terrible disaster in their city, people would commonly wear loose-fitting dark-colored, coarse garments made of goat's hair which hung on them like a large gunny sack. And, and on top of that, they would take ashes from the remains of a fire and they would throw them on themselves so they would be covered with them and appear ghastly and, and unclean. This is why our Catholic friends will, will put a little sign of, of ashes on the forehead when they go through Lent, they're, they're pulling from this Old Testament practice. It was a symbol. It's a symbol of grief, a symbol of mourning, particularly over sin. Sometimes they would even sit in the midst of a cold ash heap and just throw the ashes on themselves as a vivid outward expression of inward 
grief. And so what you see here is that these very proud, arrogant, wicked people respond visibly to the mercy of God. But they were the unlikeliest recipients of God's mercy. I mean, do you see that? These people were the enemy of God's people. These people oppressed the people of God. They killed the people of God. They pillaged their villages and took their possessions. They were the unlikeliest recipients of God's mercy. I mean, to an ancient Israelite like Jonah, these would have been the last people on earth you would have thought God's mercy and grace would extend to. But look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And brothers and sisters, that same promise is even more powerful today through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember being in a, in a large university city in China about 10 years ago. And our team met a young man named Rocky. That was his English name. He came from a well-resourced family and he himself was a very influential young man. Had a very magnetic personality but he was also extremely antagonistic to the faith. As a matter of fact, he, he actually showed up to Bible studies and Christian fellowships simply to be the outsider jerk. I mean, that was his intention of being there. He was the missionary's thorn in the flesh. And though she loved him and wanted to compel him to come into the faith community and believe the gospel, Rocky's presence at these gatherings actually was a thorn in the flesh to her missionary service. And while we were there, one night, one of our guys shared his testimony with Rocky and also shared the Christian gospel. And for whatever reason, in that moment, through his particular testimony, the words really resounded with Rocky. And as Rocky intently and respectfully listened, even to the point of tears, as he heard how Christ had changed our brother's life, Rocky started coming to grips with his own life. And Rocky didn't place faith in Jesus that night. But he later did. And today, I'm continually encouraged as I read some of his posts on Facebook. And I see how God is continually changing his life. From a, from a short-term mission standpoint, Rocky would have been the last person I would have expected to become a follower of Jesus. But God's mercy extends even to those we least expect. What about you today? Think about your family. Think about your job. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your dorm Think about the rec center where you play and work out. Who is it? Who is it in your life that you cannot imagine them ever saying yes to Jesus Christ? Keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing the gospel with them. Keep 
loving them. Keep serving them in the name of Jesus. Keep showing them the power of a gospel-changed life. Because here's the truth this morning, brother and sister in Christ. There is no one's sin that is so great that God's mercy is not greater still. And there is no one so far from God's grace that he won't relentlessly pursue them in order to bring them to his salvation. And the preaching of Jonah to these wicked Ninevites and their response and God's mercy and grace to them reminds us of that this morning. And so, as we walk with God on mission in this world, Christian we need to be reminded of these crucial reminders today. That God is faithful to you even when you're not faithful to Him. That God's words are powerful for His mission even when yours are very weak and feeble. And that God is very, very merciful even to those you would least expect. So how do we respond this morning? Well, I want to talk to two groups of people this morning as we get ready to close. Let me first of all talk to the believer in the room. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the room, believer, I want to challenge you in response to what we've heard today to rejoice in God's patient hand of second chances. I want you to rejoice in that. Everything in your sin, everything in your insecurities, Every part of your default as a human being wants you to believe, the enemy himself wants you to believe, that when you spiritually blow it, that your God is done with you. And there is no coming back. There are, there are believers in this room, I know it confidently, there are believers in this room, and you have convinced yourself that God is done with you. And that when you even see these students on this stage this morning talking about how God used them in East Asia, you're sitting there going, yep, that's not me. That can never be me. Because I know what I've done and I know how I've disappointed God. I'm going to reemphasize re what I said last week. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have been born again by His Spirit, and you have been redeemed by His blood. When God looks at you, He is pleased with you because of what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. Therefore, no matter how faithful you might be, you will never make God more pleased with you than He is at this very moment. And no matter how faithless you may be, He will never be less pleased with you than He is at this moment because His pleasing of you is fixed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you are a believer, rejoice. Rejoice in the patient hand of your God and the second chances he continually offers you. Let me talk to the unbeliever in the room this morning. How do you respond? Well, if you're an unbeliever, I want to encourage you to respond. I want to encourage you to respond to God's plan of salvation. We've seen it on display today. You've heard the gospel message that Jesus Christ came to earth in order to live that perfect life that God required of you to die the punishing death that you were supposed to pay because of your sin but then rose victoriously from the grave on the third day so that if you would repent of your sin and place faith in his son Jesus Christ 
you would not only experience life to the fullest in this life, but you would experience life to the fullest for all of eternity with him in heaven. And so this morning, you've heard the gospel message. Respond to it. Repent of your sin. Trust Jesus by faith. Let God radically change your life like he radically changed the life of so many Ninevites thousands of years ago. And then what you do is whether you're a believer in this room and you're hearing the hope of the second chances God offers you, or whether you're an unbeliever in this room and you're ready to respond to the message of God's salvation, here's my challenge. Don't keep it to yourself. I want you to tell somebody about it today. I want you to go to another Christian brother or sister and I want you to tell them what God has done in your heart through the hearing of God's word today. I'm gonna pray for us as a church family. Our team is gonna come and lead us in a time of response. And as they do, as we musically sing, allow these words to become the prayer of your heart and allow God to work inside of you. Father, we are so thankful for your grace today. We are so thankful for your mercy today. We're so thankful that your mercies are new every morning that we as people don't have to feast on leftover mercies from yesterday because you give them more abundantly today. I pray today that the believer would rejoice in the second chances you offer that we would rejoice in our fixed position that Christ gives us through his work on the cross. I pray for the unbeliever today that they would respond, that you would give them the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, that they may start walking in newness of life today, that they would know that today is the day of salvation. And Father, give us the grace and the motivation and the courage to take someone by the hand and simply share with them what you've taught us today through your word. And we pray all these things for the glory of God and for the good of ourselves. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.